begin the service uh, sermon today, I'd like to show you a, a, a video of something absolutely unbelievable. Here's the running back. Play action. And Manning's going to heave one. There's, oh, there's a flag. Beckham, catch a one-handed that? catch. How in the world? <laughs> oh, my goodness. And Brandon Carr was back there. I mean, he is... Insane. How do you make that catch? Oh, my goodness. This is sick. Put this to music. I don't think he stepped out either. That may be the greatest catch I've ever seen. number 39. Penalty's declined. Result of the play. Touchdown. You have to be kidding me. That is impossible. That is absolutely impossible what he just did. That may be the greatest catch I've ever seen in my life. It's in the conversation. Wow. Is the running back. Play action. I don't know if you heard the superlatives that they were using in there. They called it incredible, uh, amazing, insane, ridiculous. All right? Whether you're a football fan or not, you've got to admit that that catch was pretty unbelievable, right? And yet as unbelievable and incredible and amazing as it was, it was true. We know what happened. Why? Because we can Google it. When I was Googling the word unbelievable, this is what came up. You can go and Google it yourself and you can watch it over and over and over again. We know that it happened. It's true. As incredible and unbelievable as it was. We're uh, in the midst of a sermon series here called Unbelievable. And in this unbelievable... Uh, sermon series, we've been talking about the second creed, the uh, second article, the second part of the Apostles' Creed, our confession that we as Christians state uh, as the things that we believe, the things that little Declan just said that he believed. As we talk about that, we've been talking about a number of things about our God, our Jesus, and in many ways, He's unbelievable, right? Incredible, true, but unbelievable. And that's what we've been talking about. The first week we talked about the, the fact that Jesus is uh, the true Son of God. We talked about the fact that it's unbelievable that uh, the God of the universe would humble Himself to leave His heavenly throne in, in heaven to come down here and walk around with us in this messy world. The second week, Pastor Dave talked a little bit about the fact that this Jesus is also true man, that he was born of a virgin. Now, that's rather unbelievable. When have we ever heard of another human being born of a virgin? Even Mary thought that was a little bit unbelievable. How will this happen since I am a virgin, she asked. But as Pastor Dave pointed out, and the angel pointed out, with God nothing is impossible. And then last week, Pastor Dave talked about another trait of Jesus that we might find to be rather unbelievable, and that is that He never sinned. He was absolutely perfect. From the time He was born to the time that He ascended into heaven, Jesus never sinned one time. He was tempted, but He, was never, he never sinned. That also is amazing and incredible because there's never been another human being on the face of the earth who has been or ever will be perfect without sinning. So we have this God that in so many ways is absolutely unbelievable. True, but unbelievable. 
Today we're talking about the fact that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified. Now why, in the midst of a series called Unbelievable, would we put that particular piece in there? Because to be honest with you folks, this is absolutely verifiable. Just as that video of Beckham tells us that that actually happened, we have proof that Jesus did suffer under Pontius Pilate, and he did suffer crucifixion. About 105 miles north and west of Jerusalem is a town that's right along the sea of a Mediterranean Sea, an ancient city called Caesarea Maritime. This was built by Herod the Great, and there, as they were excavating this area, there was a stone that was found in 1961, about two feet by three feet. And on this stone, a stone that was repurposed, by the way, uh, was printed on the backside, Pontius Pilate. So we know from archaeological science that Pontius Pilate actually existed. But not only that, we have historians that talk about him, a guy by the name of Tacitus. He was a senator for the Roman Senate, and he was also a Roman historian. And he verifies that Pontius Pilate actually served as the procreator, or pro, the precept, the governor, <laughs> of, of uh, the Judean area, Judah, from the years 26 to 36 A.D. All right? So we have a, a Roman that tells us that he was there. And that was the time period when Jesus walked on this earth and the time period in which Jesus was crucified. And there was a guy by the name of Josephus. He was a Jew, not a Christian, not a believer, but he also mentioned that Pontius Pilate was a governor during that same period. And he also mentioned that this certain Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So we know from history from books and from writings of historians, and we also know from archaeological scientists that this event took place. So why are we talking about it being unbelievable? It's interesting to note that in the whole Apostles' Creed, God is mentioned, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but only two others are mentioned, two people, Mary and Pontius Pilate. Now, why would they put in, be put in there? Because this places Jesus smack dab in the middle of human history. We know that he actually existed, that he walked on this earth, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, and that he died on the cross. We know that for a fact. So why are we putting this all in here talking about this part of the creed that isn't terribly unbelievable. Well, let's step back a little bit. About three weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Jesus is the true Son of God. How do we know this? Well, there were people that proclaimed that. We believe in angels in our society, don't we? Yeah. Well, the angels proclaimed it to Mary, to Joseph. Several times they proclaimed that Jesus was the Son of the Most High, that He was the Son of God. We have people that were were, um, it had demons in them. Okay, man, I'm losing my language today. Okay, my words. But we have these people that are possessed by demons, and the demons cry out from these people, what do you have to do with us, son of God? 
We believe in demons in our society, don't we? And then we have people that would follow with Jesus, the ones that knew Him and that talked with Him and spent time with Him. Peter, most notably, in another city, Caesarea Philippi, he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Others that weren't part of His inner circle also proclaimed Jesus. Martha, the, the sister of Lazarus who had died, before Lazarus was raised from the dead, she proclaimed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe that. And so we have all these people, but probably the most important person that proclaimed that Jesus was the Son of God was Jesus himself. We saw that when he was in trial, when he was under oath, the chief priest, who was the judge at the time, asked him point blank, are you, under oath, I ask you, under the oath of God, I ask you, are you the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And we know from the reaction of the chief priest, he tore his robe, which is the same effect as we have in our, our courts now where the judge delivers the, the hammer of the gavel and when he pounds the gavel, that he knew that Jesus was guilty. He was convicted of declaring himself as the Son of God. So we know that Jesus declared to be the Son of God. And we also know that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified. Isn't that rather unbelievable? That, that God would be sentenced to death, the death of a criminal? Really? Seriously? Isn't God perfect? And if God is perfect and, and sinless, what in the world is he be doing being sentenced to death? The death of a criminal. Isn't God also powerful and mighty? He's the creator of the universe. And if he's powerful enough to do that, couldn't he have just like struck everybody dead and walked away? Why did he die on the cross? Really? And then we think about God as being the one who possesses all knowledge and, and all wisdom. He's the one to put this world together in such perfect order and design. Couldn't he come up with a better defense when he was up against the court to be sentenced to death? Really? It's all rather unbelievable, isn't it? But the fact of the matter is, it is verifiable. And it is true that Jesus, the Son of God, came down from heaven and he submitted himself to be a suffering servant. Now, why would he do that? Why would Jesus come down to this earth, live a perfect life, and submit to being a suffering servant for us? The fact is, he did do that. In fact, Jesus even told us that he was going to do that. Right after Peter made his famous uh, proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus turned to the, his disciples a little bit later and he said to them, he said, you know, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and die 
and on the third day rise again. Another time, Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. Jesus talked about himself in less than glowing terms, calling himself the good shepherd, a shepherd. And he said, the good shepherd, I am the good shepherd, he said. The good shepherd's laid down his life for his sheep. It doesn't make sense that the God of the universe would come down here to be a secret servant. I mean, a secret servant, a, a suffering servant, right? And to the Jews, this made no sense either. After all, they were looking for a Messiah. Of course they were looking for a Messiah, but this wasn't the kind of Messiah they were looking for. They were looking for a mighty king, a man of valor, a man with power. They were looking for a guy who was going to be a descendant of David that was going to usher in a kingdom like David had, an empire where they were a world power. They were looking for prosperity and power. They were looking for peace. Jesus didn't fit the bill. And folks, I think if we are honest with ourselves, we are kind of like that too, right? When we sign up for this Christianity thing, we kind of like, you know, I'm looking for somebody who's going to be my advocate, somebody who's going to stand beside me, somebody with power and might, somebody who's going to take care of my problems. We're looking for a hero. And the hero that we're looking for we're not looking for someone who is going to suffer. We're looking for someone who's going to be successful. We're not looking for somebody who's impoverished. We're looking for somebody who brings prosperity. We're not looking for somebody who's timid. We're looking for somebody who's tough. We're certainly not looking for someone who's going to die. We want someone who's going to defeat our enemies, right? He suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified. Why? I don't know if you noticed, but the, the last part of the gospel reading that Pastor Dave just read to us, Jesus is on the cross and suddenly he cries out, I thirst. Now we can understand that, right? Physically speaking, we can understand why Jesus would be thirsty. After all, he'd spent the whole night in trial in three different courtrooms. They had beaten him. They had no concern about his physical welfare at all. They had spit upon him and mocked him and, you know, dressed him up and then undressed him. And, and finally they carried him off and they made him carry his own cross up this hill. And then they crucified him. A death that you and I can't even imagine. But we do know that just by the loss of blood alone, he had to be thirsty. But there was an emotional thing to this too, and we can understand that. After all, his disciples had deserted him. And those that were gathered around the cross were mocking him and making fun of him. He was lonely. Even the thief on the cross next to him was making fun of him in his death. Can you imagine how thirsty he must have been for someone to stand beside him? But there's even more. Jesus was spiritually thirsty. It's interesting to note that in the Swedish language, 
the root word for the word thirst is the exact same root word for the word fire. Jesus was suffering hell on that cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Daddy, where are you? He experienced something that you and I have never, ever experienced. We may think we have, but we've never, ever experienced life without the presence of God because he's here. But Jesus did. As God withdrew from him in order so that Jesus could suffer hell on that cross. Jesus was damned that day. And Jesus was spiritually thirsty. Do you know what I find the most unbelievable about all of this? He did that for me. He did that for me. And he did that for you. He suffered all of that. He became a suffering servant for every single one of us. Why? Because he knew that there was no way that any single one of us would be able to pay the price that was necessary. Eternal death. And by the way, eternal death lasts forever. It never ends. We would never escape from that with any kind of freedom to be with him again. And our Lord God could not stand to see that happen. He loved us too much to let that happen. And so God sent his son to be our suffering servant so that you and I might be able to live with him. He wanted to restore the order that he had created us to live in and live under. Do you know why he did all that? Do you know why he became a suffering servant? Because servanthood works. You go back to the Garden of Eden, and the Garden of Eden was all about serving. The God of the universe served mankind and all of his creation by providing them with everything that they would need. Sunlight, soil, plants, food, everything that they needed. And mankind served their Lord God by tending to the garden that he had made. Man served woman the bone of his bones and the flesh of his flesh, and woman served man by being his helper as he tended to the garden. Man tended and served all of creation by tending to the garden. It was all about servanthood. It was all about looking outside of the self. It was when sin came into this world that it all became about me. And when Jesus died on the cross, he restored that order. And now, what does that mean for us? Well, I'd like to share with you one more time the Bible passage the pastor read from 1 Peter. Peter tells us, folks, we've been restored. This is what it looks like now. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who just, judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
For you were straying like sheep, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Folks, we were wandering. We needed a suffering servant to help us through this. But now, now that we've been restored, he tells us this. You have been, you have been called. You've been called because Christ also suffered for you that you might follow in his steps. Folks, think about this for a second. Servanthood works. Every relationship we have works better when we're serving. Think about the workplace. When the boss is serving his employees and the employees are serving the boss, doesn't it work better? When in the home, the wife serves the husband and the husband serves the wife selfishly, selflessly, doesn't it work better? When the parents are serving their children in love and the children obey the parents in love and serve the parents that way, doesn't that work better? And in the business relationship, when a customer comes in and the business owner or employee serves the customer and the customer pays the bill faithfully and serving in return, doesn't that work better? You see, servanthood works. And you and I have been called to serve. But here's the best part. Psalm 23 ends with these words. David is praying to the good shepherd. And he said, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Folks, our suffering servant, Jesus Christ, has prepared a place for you. He's prepared a room for you in his father's house, a place that's going to last forever. And that, when that day comes and we get to go there, he's got this feast prepared for us, laid out, lavish, and wonderful. Our suffering servant is waiting there with oil in his hand, prepared to anoint you and me as the guests of honor. And we get to live with him forever. All because he was willing to be our suffering servant. And folks, that may be amazing. It certainly is incredible. Some people may call it insane or ridiculous. We might think it's unbelievable, but it's true. And now, may our Lord and Savior, our suffering service, give us the power and the will to be suffering servants to others as well. Amen? Amen. Amen.